0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Sandra Bargman. A few years ago, I wrote and performed a solo show called The Edge of Every Day, which was an exploration of the rough edges and contradictions we all face and grapple with. The show hit a nerve, and the relevance of the topic would only grow over time more than I could have foreseen. So, here we are. Real talk with real people. Sharing stories and perspectives that spark provocative invitations to leap out of what's safe. On the edge of every day. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. We are live in the hive. Thank you for joining me on this, the 13th episode of the Edge of Every Day here on talkradio.nyc. We have started this new year recommitted to courageous conversations and recharged to face what awaits in 2022. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, and for those of you who don't know me yet, I encourage you to check out my bio and talkradio.nyc, or of course you can check out my website, sandrabargeman.com, or tune in to any of my previous episodes. In a nutshell, this show is about celebrating triumphs, pushing boundaries and exploring rough edges through conversations and shared stories with friends and colleagues. It's my hope that we can begin to understand our edges. And what I mean by edges is those places where we are fearful those places where we are resistant to change, those places where paradoxes and contradictions live in our beliefs and our understandings, both in ourselves and in the world around us, those places where we don't want to look. We live in turbulent times. We are reassessing and reshifting. And we are coming to understand that life isn't black or white. It must be an embrace of both. And the more we recognize our own edges and get real with them, the more we can help others to do the same. And that, I fully believe, can help to change the world. So thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, it's time to introduce our guest this evening. Joseph Lee is a Jungian analyst, educator, national lecturer, and podcast co-host. Joe and I met in our freshman year at Carnegie Mellon University in the BFA Performing Arts Program, wide-eyed 18-year-olds fresh out of high school tossed into an intense cauldron of creativity, confrontation, and uncompromising work. Shortly after graduation, His interest shifted to integrative movement therapies, and he relocated to Charlottesville, Virginia, to train as an Alexander technique teacher. For the following 20 years, he focused on rehabilitative work with injured classical musicians. As his work with students progressed, his curiosity about the interface of somatic and psychological issues deepened. In service to that, he attained a master's degree in clinical social work and a diplomate in analytical psychology. Today, Joseph is a Jungian analyst in private practice in Southern Virginia, focusing on masculine psychology and men's issues. He is a co-host and co-creator of the popular podcast, This Jungian Life, and the online learning platform Dream School, where people learn how to interpret their own dreams. In addition, he is President Emeritus of the Philadelphia Association of Jungian Analysts that provides analytic training. He has lectured nationally on the Hermetic Kabbalah and Western Mystery School traditions. Welcome Joseph!
1: That was a marvelously vibrant introduction, and it puts me <laughs> right back. <laughs> In right class back at with Carnegie you. Mellon, it 18 totally year does. <laughs> Absolutely. Trying to remember my lines, actually, <laughs> is, is the biggest horror, you know, of that I'm time. I'm nothing uh,
0: if not energetic, and particularly with you.
1: It, it oh, my God, my what a heart. pleasure
0: to have you on Joseph and I reconnected probably like 15 years ago on Mm -hmm. Facebook. And then we've, uh, you know, been more in contact through our reunions. And but I remember thinking, you know, you and I seeing our posts on Facebook and seeing that we had taken these somewhat similar dot connections throughout our life um, which I want to get into. But before we do that, I want to wish you a happy Chinese New Year because <laughs> we're both into astrology. At least we were when we were 18. <laughs> <laughs> and we are both water tigers.
1: Mm, I like it. that.
0: We are both, which means we're calm, careful, and full of ambition. And we have strong learning ability. And like new things, we embrace change. We're full of passion for achieving our goals. And just because it's Chinese New Year, I wanted to let everyone know that Yong, born in 1875, is a diligent, compassionate, and generous pig. <laughs> oh, There's shadow, an intro. shadow. There's an intro. <laughs> That's a great intro. I love Chinese New Year. I was always, when I was little, I was always so proud. I was a tiger, like wild tiger anyway so let's dive in let's dive in my friend and about those dot connections um, how you've made the transitions and connected your dots from loving acting to moving into the uh, being coming a teacher and and of course I loved your choice of the Alexander technique and then how you expanded into your desire to go back to school tell us briefly that story share with us that
1: well I think that when I was a kid, I had already been exposed to the Hermetic Kabbalah. I, I, it was a strange and marvelous time. I was probably 16, and the school system in Long Island, where I was raised, I was raised in Huntington. Oh, had, that's right, Long Island. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, New, I'm a New Yorker. Hey,
0: my God. Oh, no, that's Pittsburgh.
1: <laughs> <And> there you <laughs> go.
0: The shot out of me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, and the school system, which at that time was flush with money and now we're back, you know, pre-1980, oh, yeah. had hired a group of a troupe of professional actors to come in and teach us. And it was mm-hmm. such an extraordinary experience that it gave me the sense that this is what I wanted to do with my life. They also introduced us to all kinds of spirituality, which was a bit radical back down in oh, 1978 or so. But that opened a door, Mm. and I found myself finally as a high school junior going to one of the metaphysical bookstores in Northport, Long Island, walking in and befriending this wise fellow that worked there who began to introduce me to various esoteric topics, the most important being the Kabbalah. And there was something about the cosmology of Kabbalah that brought an ordering principle to my own psyche that I needed desperately at that time in my life. Mm. And little did I know that that archetypal draw was something that was going to be central to my career now here as I'm approaching 60 years old. So it feels like there was a mark that was set when I was a kid right there at 16 that continued to slowly reverberate through various choices so when it came time to choose a school, the only fun thing I could imagine was being an actor, having absolutely no sense of the reality of what that meant. <laughs> and uh, and as you know, showing up at Carnegie really? Mellon, no <laughs> isn't this going to be like high school? <laughs> I've got a barn. I've got a ladder. <laughs> and then the first thing what happened, of course, at Carnegie Mellon's, we were dispossessed of every fantasy that we could possibly have had about acting as a career and as a training process and uh it was uh excruciating indeed yeah it was a real trial by fire
0: indeed it was as you know and indeed i do
1: which created this incredible trauma bonding That happened uh, for all of us. For all of us. How long we stayed at the program.
0: Well, exactly. And all of us are still so close. It's, you know, and a shout out to all of them that are listening in right now.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. After I graduated from school, I was haunted by a particular memory of Bob Parks giving us Alexander Technique lessons at Carnegie Mellon University. I love it, yeah. And there was something about the promise of what that could do that seemed like a solution, that my own childhood trauma that had been locked in my body and it created a tremendous stiffness, both, I think, in my psychology as well as my body, perhaps those two things happened simultaneously anyway, needed to be resolved. And so... I took some lessons and decided that I really needed to commit to some sense of mastery of the Alexander technique. And when I went into training, which is three years, I actually thought that that was going to solve all of my kind of body trauma. And then I would take Hollywood by storm. So, <laughs> right. so the childhood memories are slow to die. <laughs> so they are. right about year two, I realized that I was a really mediocre actor, but I loved being an educator and I loved teaching. I loved the intimacy of bodywork and touch. And I was thrilled to be able to move into this healing modality, which I did for about 20 years. And my communication skills, which we learned as actors, was essential because yes. I was able to present. And so many people are not familiar with being a professional communicator. After about 20 years of that, and a lot of reading of Jung and a lot of other important material, I felt the inner call. It was this little gong went off, and it said, it's time to change everything. Yeah. Closed up shop, went back to school, kept going back to school until everything kind of came together. And then finally, in a 2018, uh, a friend of mine that I went to school with, Lisa Marciano, said to two of us, me and my friend Deb, how about we just do a podcast? We've graduated from school. There's yeah. no other way we're going to stay in touch. Let's have fun. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. And we did have no idea.
0: That's the best way to start a new project.
1: And we all said, yes, let's do it. Let's oh, throw it
0: together. My, well, that um, a brilliant, brilliant intro to the podcast at which we will pick up when we come back from our first break with Joseph Lee. Stay tuned, everyone. back with joseph lee leslie ellis on facebook just because you didn't take hollywood by storm oh, oh, I love mean, her. Mean i'm Martin? a
1: mediocre actor <laughs> I mean, it
0: does not mean you are a mediocre actor i highly concur thank you Leslie thank you ellis. thank you
1: for defending my self-esteem <laughs> yes
0: so and back, thank you, Leslie, that's do- just beautiful. Um, we're going to dive back in with this Jungian Life podcast, which I, I, you know, boom, it started in 2018, and you've done over 200 episodes. You, What is your listenership?
1: It's remarkable to all of us, but at this point, it's we have a fam- about, yeah, 290,000 people a month. And that grows exponentially each month. So there is a certain momentum that we're experiencing. We've just passed uh, 5 million downloads, which certainly compared to Joe Rogan is nothing, but for us well, as new ouch. people on the scene. <laughs> but
0: we're not on Spotify, so there.
1: i keeping myself humble there. Uh, it's exciting, it's unprecedented, and it's, uh, it's opened some nice doors for all of us, which has just been remarkable. It feels like such a blessing.
0: It's so good. It is just so good. It's three dear friends, Lisa, Deb, and Joe, sitting around, all Jungian analysts, sitting around, telling personal stories, sharing insights, Jungian insights, um, mythologies, archetypes, and just all building on each other. And And then you finish with dream work, which... You know, it's just from soup to nuts. It is so delightful. And Thank and you. the topics are, are you know, everything that they feel mythological to timely to very personal. It's really a remarkable podcast.
1: One of the niches that we were hoping to fill is to create a bridge between people who are not familiar with Jung's work
0: yeah.
1: and to create a kind of threshold for them to discover whether or not they're interested and perhaps take a step deeper. We knew that there were lots of area diet lectures on Jungian work that were easy to find, whether of it's course. YouTube uh, or uh, podcasts. But we were really hoping that, you know, people sitting around a coffee table in Peoria who'd never heard of Jung might come across the podcast and think, this is relevant. This is relevant to my life. This is could provide a kind of solution for things that are troubling me. And so far, it seems like that is true. And the feedback we get from the wider Jungian community is people are showing up for analysis, you know, all over the United States, particularly uh, saying that they've heard the podcast, and now they're interested in going deeper. That is, that's amazing. That is so gratifying to all of us.
0: Yes, truly so fulfilling, which is, of course, one of the plethora of reasons I wanted you on this is is to open that door here and and in particular because of the topic of of this podcast the edge of every day to really understand the edge because the edge is based on um the shadow work and that begins with Jung as the shadow self. I mean, you can think of the edge as jumping off the cliff. You can think of the edge as pushing boundaries. You can think of the edge as the quintessential uh, lightness and darkness double-edged sword. But the primary reason I created it was with that shadow work, a uh, in, in addition to the light work and understanding, internal understanding, which is why I created the show to begin with, the first live solo performance. So speak to us about what is, what is the shadow?
1: So in Jungian's concept, the shadow is everything that we don't want to be but have a really strong reaction to. So we're all coming into the world as whole little beings. And as we're acculturated in our families of origin, in our school systems, in our friend groups, in our religious and educational institutions, we learn through these complicated feedback loops what parts of ourselves are going to be rewarded and what parts of ourselves are going to create problems. And as a survival technique, without even realizing it, we begin to parse out the things that are not okay and instinctively store them. We kind of banish them. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Every child has to be socialized. And when that doesn't happen, it's a real problem, by the way. So we want to have some smooth dance with the culture that we've been born in. But sometime around middle age, when the ego is strong enough, Mm. all of those things that we've banished into the wilderness start howling. And so how i think about it is all the things that are not allowed go into a kind of internal wilderness and they kind of devolve and when they come back they they kind of knock on our door with twigs in their hair and mud on their face and a little bit of squirrel blood on their cheek and they're more primal than they were when they were banished so it's scary for us to say hello to the things that were not allowed the other thing which is so important is many of the things that are banished are gold are, are incredible talents which for whatever reason were disallowed in our family of origin yes. so our finding those things is an, is the essential first stage of most union work
0: yeah our deep gifts that 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 we are afraid to bring to the world because we learned as children that and and it it sounds to me like in your case some of your your um spiritual intuitions were were a part of that they certainly were for me
1: you know strangely enough um when my parents started finding these strange books on my shelf i think my dad just didn't understand them he was raised roman catholic and just wasn't interested and as a matter of fact my father was so naive that i was watching television and watching a David Copperfield special. And I said, Dad, it's that, magic. Magic's amazing. I, I, you know, what do, I need to find out more about this. So my dad, who's commuting into Manhattan, said, sure. So he comes back the next day, and he tosses a paper book on my bed, and it's Llewellyn's Guide to Black Magic. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I read it, you know, and I'm like scaring the pants off myself. Um, (laughs) You know, it was so frightening (laughs) this existed, but that was kind of a strange spiritual initiation, but it speaks to just how innocent my own parents were about spirituality that worked in my favor because they also were not oppressive about the things that I wanted to investigate, I couldn't have anticipated how important that would be later on in my life. Mm. But coming back to shadow work, there are a couple of ways that we find shadow. And one is through projection. Mm. When we're finally ready to be in a self-confrontive crucible, one of the things that an analyst will do is ask you about the people in your environment that you have a disproportionate amount of disdain for. The people you can't stand the person at work that makes your blood boil the political party that you just can't tolerate hearing a single word about that or your neighbor that you just want to howl at right and you know sometimes we're legitimately angry at people but when it seems like it's overdone what's happening is that the part of us that we find unacceptable is beginning to rumble. And in an attempt to help us realize it, our own psychological center begins to highlight anyone that seems to have those properties, even in a tiny nodal way, and make us focus in on it. So we're kind of obsessed with this thing that they have, and we're sure that we don't. So that's the beginning of the confrontation. It comes from within us.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I, I... How much time do we have, Kyle? Because this will dictate which direction I go in my next question. Because I want to ask... I want to share that uh, the story that I told you about my family member. Um, but that I want to open into the political realm. And four minutes. Okay. So thank you, Kyle. So... In terms of, then, the goal of analysis, of Jungian analysis, is to mine these shadows and to see how using the understanding of projection and using dreams.
1: Well, so we might project things onto the, onto the, our neighbors, for instance, and then find them intolerable. But often at night we will dream of figures that frighten us nightmares which are by the way the most interesting dreams because the thing that we're running away from the thing that we're so horrified about is some kind of a psychological value that we find intolerable and if it catches us it's going to demand recognition so people have lots of great stories where they're dreaming of this monster that that's running after them. And somebody says, you've got to remember in the dream to turn around and say, you know, boo back to it. And then often if people can do that, or more importantly, they might be able to say, what are you here to teach me? Yes, That figure yes. will almost always stop dead in its tracks. It will look at you and it will tell you a piece of information that you actually need to know, which at this point in your life is rarely as frightening as it was when you banished it 30 years earlier. Indeed. And that's an incredible revelation. And it's Indeed. through this mechanism of dream encounters that the psychological center of your personality is able to slowly tweak the things right. that you're running away from and bring you towards them. Now, if we know something about shadow work... We can actually run towards it so that we don't have to be punished by our own psychology. Jung said something famously that the things we refuse to be conscious of, we meet as fate. Indeed. So the more that we can accept the intolerable things in us, or as one of my friends said wonderfully, my beloved degenerates (laughs) that live inside, the more we can welcome them the more peaceful our outer relationships will be. And I have seen that work absolutely amazingly.
0: Mm. Oh, well, and you really just hit on the heart of all of this work, period. And of, the, of course, that's the goal, is always the, the willingness to see that which we are afraid of as in, in any mm. aspect of our life, as the thing that is, is the great teacher. That includes, you know, our shadow work, what triggers us, trauma that happens to us always, being willing to, and this is not in a toxic positivity kind of way, in in a, a genuine, I must look at every challenge, no matter how difficult, to find some sense of a silver lining and some teaching and some wisdom.
1: And that goes to something central in Jung's work, that everything that we find painful is a part of ourself that will make us whole, that has the promise of restoring us, which sounds counterintuitive, but it promises to be true, that our symptoms, whether they're depression or anxiety or overeating for that, have embedded in them the secret that we refuse to let ourselves know.
0: Love that. Well, and that is a perfect segue. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, with Joseph, we are going to talk about a dream and and a situation and get into some of the shadow aspects of our political life. When we come back, stay tuned on the Edge of Every Day. Well, I'm going to shout out to Isaiah Anson. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you, beautiful soul, for your comment about your family and blessings to all of you. So we're going to pick up with um, this. uh, I I want to start with this little story that that feels like such a, a perfect little microcosm into all sorts of unpacking into our political shadow. Um, it took place, my family and I, and my husband, and a few family members, my parents, and a few cousins and such, and some family friends were all met in Asheville. We were all together there for a reason, and we had brunch at the Biltmore Hotel, which was fabulous. And we're walking, and, and, and my, my cousin and I got ahead, and we were somehow got on the conversation of reality TV. And I'm sure it's because it was somewhat new at that time. And, and we were talking, he was talking about it. And I just was staying quiet and, and, and not really getting involved in the conversation. And finally, he asked me what I thought about reality TV. And I said, do you want me to be honest? And um, yeah, please tell me what you think about it. And I said, well, I think that it appeals to the lowest in all of us. I find it cruel. And crass and demeaning and scapegoating and all of those things combined. And I said, in addition to that, I have a sense that if it continues and grows, it will have dire consequences in our culture in the future, which was quite prophetic. And when I had finished, um, I, he told me he thought that I was condescending. And, of course, at the time, I, I I said, well, that's just simply because you think that I'm saying those things about you because you like it when you asked me my opinion. At the time, I was unwilling to see that there was a shadow in me, a righteousness. There was a righteousness about that. But there was a, it was a commentary on his shadow, a commentary on my sh- shadow, our projections. And it was also about projections and shadows within media um, and where we've, and, 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 our, and our political, you know, I was the, the condescending elite in this conversation, this, what was a baby political conversation. And, um, you know, so it feels like this fantastic little microcosm into our political scene and our social networks and all of it, just fast forward, it's explosive and out of control. So with that, can you speak to us about the the political shadow and how that has been growing and manifesting?
1: What was going on in my imagination as you were telling that story about reality TV and kind of Jerry Springer and all that kind of stuff, and I remember when that first hit the scene how the shocking... It was primarily because I'd never witnessed people behaving that way. I also have a bit of a suspicious side, which makes me wonder how much of that is staged and how much of it is real in okay, terms of people really getting swept you. up. That's the producer <laughs> in me, probably. But I was thinking about the way that the collective needs a place to ritualize what is intolerable in the civil society. Yes. So in the Roman era, people had uh, the gladiators. They would go to the Colosseum and Uh. they would witness these horrible uh, behaviors of murder and killing animals and killing people. And then they would go home and they would be less inclined to exercise that behavior with each other. It was a way of placating a kind of ferocious animality in the yes. unconscious of the collective. And so those kinds of displays of savagery, whether it's just emotional savagery or uh, some kind of a boxing you know ring or any other thing right. or a football field football. for that matter, yeah, It's a way to discharge primal libido mm. in service, to keeping the culture somewhat civilized. And I think that if we sanitize the culture too much, that goes underground and a kind of sadism begins to percolate up in other environments that is garbed as help and goodness and religiosity. And we all have stories about Tremendous sadistic behavior that has been delivered maybe to us, maybe to other people in the name of making someone better, making them a finer person. Mm. So it's dangerous to suppress too much in the collective. It's best to provide an arena where things can play out within a certain amount of boundary and that humans, at least thus far, seem to need that. Thus, the proliferation of incredibly violent movies, incredibly sexual movies, something in the human culture wants to engage that, and it is safer if it's engaged in the imaginal world. Indeed. So, stepping back to your other question about what's playing out in the political arena, I think... I'm going to oversimplify that (laughs) just for the point of our conversation. (laughs) I'm sure there are wiser people than myself that could get into political theory. But what I'd like to lift up is the process of themification and turning people, individuals, into groups that become them, them and us. Mm -hmm. And every time we whitewash the particularities of a group of people it makes it easier for us to then project our own uncivilized parts onto them and then to punish them or seek to punish them in the way that we secretly punish ourselves when no one is looking yeah. so those savages those brutes those dangerous folks and i'm not savage and i'm not a brute and there's nothing dangerous about me yeah. except when i'm full of rage and i'm you know running after them <laughs> with a pitchfork and a torch yeah so it's very difficult to pull the generalization off and to force ourselves to see each of the people in the crowd for instance as complicated individuals that have a history and that have a trajectory that we don't know about this is a central idea to Jung, mm. which the Romans called telos. And telos means that everything in the universe is moving towards an inherent purpose. Yes. Now, if we don't want to think about that in terms of planets and trees, we can at least <laughs> believe that most human beings that have a consciousness are actually driven in a direction. And we might be moving in that direction in a way that is extraordinarily unskillful or clumsy or perhaps highly conscious and elegant, Mm. but there is a purpose behind even the most troubling behavior that we might witness. If we can remember that and also find it in ourselves, then we can take the tiny step of imagining that that might be possible in the people we call our enemies.
0: Indeed. Indeed. I think that you've really touched on the heart of um, the self-judgment that is at the heart of this kind of othering, that who decided that this aspect that I'm projecting onto them that I don't want to see in myself, um, you know, of course, you've mentioned that we've gotten it in our childhood, but they're... At some point there can come a time when when we aren't so harsh and judgmental on these impulses that we have and our willingness to take a look at those and and to be more embracing of them because if we do them, if we are embrace of them in ourselves, then of course we will with others. And then again, this connects with curiosity.
1: Say more about that. What are you thinking when you say curiosity? Well,
0: as a highly curious person, and I suspect that you are as well, I created my own little word for it, for it curiosity. <laughs> um, I am deeply curious about others other cultures, other ways of doing things. I am, as an edge walker, I am very future-oriented, very comfortable with change, very comfortable with other ways of accomplishing things. This is not to say that I don't have a big fat judge- judgment person inside of me in my shadow, but because um, I think that I do, but... Um, but that doesn't get in the way of me being curious about others' behavior and, and, and a lessening of my judgment uh, around how they choose to navigate in their journey.
1: I think that's beautifully said. And I think when we remember that we resort to judgment, and I claim this for myself as well because we're all in the same soup, we or I go to judgment when the anxiety that's provoked by what I'm looking at becomes intolerable. Yes. And that takes an awful lot of energy to try to continue to be curious, even when I feel frightened. Mm-hmm. Something that a Roman playwright wrote, of course, some time ago, Terence. <laughs> I am human and I think nothing human is alien to me. Perfect. If we can take that on as a mantra and really understand that as a concept, that can open the way into some scary places within ourselves. But we also have to remember that when we can feel into something and say that this is not alien to me, we're not saying that that behavior is it permissible.
0: Is, it, and what I want for myself.
1: Right. Right. I may not want to do this thing that the culture says is criminal, and nor do I want to pay the cultural prices of that, but I can say that I understand how somebody gets to that moment. Yes. yes. And and if well, I were in those conditions, I, I absolutely could find myself acting very similarly, and I'm deeply grateful that at this point in my life, I'm not in those conditions. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'll close out. This makes me think of actor training when actors say that, you know, my character would never do that. And I was always, how do you know that your character would never do that? Given the right circumstances, Um, we we can all be capable of a lot of things that we may not think that we're capable of. But beautifully, beautifully said, beautifully shared, thank you. We are going to take a break. And when we come back for our last quarter, we're going to talk about dream work. And I have shared a dream with Joseph that he's going to do a little dream work on. So stay tuned on the Edge of Every Day with Joseph Lee.
2: (music) Join us every Tuesday at 4pm Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behaviour to get that inside track, what to do, what to avoid, and what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4pm, every Tuesday, for the Mind Behind Leadership, here live on Mm talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk
1: Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. chipping
0: around, kick my brain. And we are back on the edge of every day with Joseph Lee. And we are talking dream school and dream work. Now, as we mentioned in his spectacular podcast, thisyoungianlife.com, for those of you that want to look it up um, and listen into it, at the end of each episode, they uh, review a dream that has been submitted by a listener. And you guys also run a dream school. I do. Um, can you tell us uh, uh, quickly about your dream school and how we can, or, or do you want to jump into the dream first and then we can close up with the dream school. You can sure. tell us all about that. Yeah. Let's, maybe that's sure. a better thing to do. All okay. Right. So do you want me to share the dream?
1: Or... Yeah. I'd love for you to read it and just put it in the space and reevoke evoke the feeling of it in yourself.
0: Mm. So this is a dream that I had the night before last. Um, As I was preparing for thinking about what I wanted to ask Joseph, and it was a delicious dream and not one that is the type of dream that I have Um, I was in a very large house and I was on the top floor three or four stories there was no furniture in the house and the walls were a taupe a taupe color and There was, I was aware that people were running up and down the stairs. There was movement on the stairs. But I was not particularly frightened by that. I was just present to it and curious in a heightened way. Um, There was a, a door, there were windows, and there was a door Uh, On this top floor that I was on. And I heard a knock at the door. And I opened it. And there was a very large man. Big, burly, had long curly hair, about to shoulder length, a beard and a mustache. And he was enormous. Um, You know, not still human-sized, but but a huge human-sized man. And he was not, the door opened and there was no stairs or no anything. There was just sky behind him. And he just stood there looking at me, very present to me, but not speaking to me. And in the room with me running around behind not engaged with me not asking for my attention but certainly there was a red fox I was not afraid of the fox I was not afraid of the man but I knew that the man was caring for me outside, he was protecting me And then, I woke up.
1: So I think that my first question, and is often true in analysis, is to ask for some personal associations because each of us creates a kind of personal mythology. We might buy a book on symbols that would tell us something about the archetype of perhaps the house, the archetype of the huge fellow, this Paul Bunyan kind of guy at the door. But at first it's about your personal mythology. So Mm. when you think about this four story house with taupe walls and very little furniture, what do you personally think about that? For instance, was it attractive? Is it a place you've ever lived?
0: No. I didn't know it, but I didn't, you know, it's funny. It's, it, it was not, I was not curious about it. Like I didn't know it. I, I was just there. It, my reaction to it is, is that it was efficient and clean.
1: So it and, seems like it's a space where something could happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely.
1: And there's a lot of frenetic energy going on. Outside, yes. Outside and also running up and down the, stairs, and down the stairs inside the yes. building? or Yeah. So the setting of the dream, much like the dramatic structure of the play, is giving us some metaphoric cues about the part of our psychological life that something is happening. So it's a house that you have some familiar feeling about, but you know it's not yours. So it's an area of your own psychology that is not unknown, but it's not something that you visit regularly. It's not something you inhabit so in that regard it's at the edge yes. it's at the edge of what's familiar but it's pleasant enough and it feels like it's a stage so to speak mm-hmm. like Indeed. a black box stage where mm-hmm. things could happen and there is a lot of energy in it already so if people are running what's the quality of the running for instance they seem like they're having fun the way kids will run around or is it more panicky or what do it's you think
0: It's not panicky I wouldn't call it panicky or fun. I would just call it, again, involved.
1: Okay. So it's involved. And when you think about that feeling of involvement, high-energy involvement, what does that remind you of?
0: It feels invitational if I want to, but there is no pressure to join in. Okay. Mm. Okay.
1: So, if you were to continue to meditate on this, you might notice that that feeling corresponds to several environments around you, several opportunities that have a lot of energy that you're looking but you're not sure you want to step into yet. They're not scary but you're not sure that you want to claim it yeah and be swept into it yet and then there's a knock at the door and you answer which is interesting even though it's not your home but there's this movement towards ownership yes which is a, which is a little bit more mm-hmm. personal than it was at the beginning of the dream and we have this tremendous powerful long-haired man is he garbed in a particular way or is he naked <laughs> I wish he was naked
0: no um <laughs> no he I, I i don't have a scent he's clothed but i don't it's light colored i don't have three minutes we're three
1: minutes all right we'll, well we'll move it along
0: oh my goodness me, <laughs> i have six minutes of here
1: right when we think of big are we talking like he's an eight foot man or are we just talking about his six I'm, foot no three? he's maybe
0: like seven foot
1: He's seven foot. So yeah. this is an unusual fellow. It's, we don't you know often see seven foot people, although we sometimes do. Mm. And he's standing there in a way that it doesn't sound like he's trying to force his way into the house. It's more declarative. Yeah, He's saying, I exist. You have mm. to answer the knock. So think back to your ministerial training mm. and who knocks at the door
0: those who need to be served.
1: Yes, and Christ.
0: Well, of course, but I, I think of all of all of all of the servants, all of the masters, all of them, and those who, and the people who come who want to be served.
1: It can be. Yeah. It can be all of those with needs but
0: he is big so to your point yes there was a sense there was a there wasn't a curiosity to be served there was a uh, i am here to serve you energy
1: and reassuring to you to your
0: point yes
1: so the message that comes from that symbol because he's a metaphor he's a symbol and the symbol is big powerful masculine i am safe and i am safe unto myself He doesn't represent something outside of you. He represents some potency inside yourself that from time to time, if it falls out of consciousness, needs to knock on the door of your mind so that it can remind you, hey, I'm here. I I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still around here. (laughs) Yes. And inside the house of your psyche, there's you and this instinct that the fox is an instinctive. The fox, the
0: edge walker.
1: Yeah, the one who's there at Twilight, investigating, um, playing.
0: smart, observant.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, we have very little time left, and I wanted to uh, certainly offer you. Thank you for that, Joe. It was marvelous and very enlightening, and I hope it was for our listeners. Your dream school. So again, you can go to www.thisjungianlife.com dot com or depthpsychology.net to learn about joseph to learn about the dream school um is there anything you'd like to add to that before we sign off
1: uh, we'd love to see you there uh, please feel free when you go to the website to send us an email ask us any questions and just so that people know we're assuming that DreamWork is new to you so don't be shy. Jump right in. We'll take you right from the beginning, all the way through a twelve-step process, and at the end, we feel confident that you will be able to absolutely unpack your own dreams. And we also have online dream groups that people are forming, which are international, and they're developing friendships and two people started a romance, <laughs> they met online, but it's just really amazing thing that's happening. Yeah, it's
0: just marvelous. Well, I've been fascinated with dreams forever and ever. Sure. But so again, life dot com, psychology dot net. I'd like to thank you, Joe, for being on my show. I am just have loved having you on. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. It's just, it's a joy. Just, wild. <laughs> just, just your a wild joy. Face. Just a it's wild a joy.
0: joy. And thank you to all of you listening in. I hope you will check out Joe's podcast and his dream school. Thank you for listening in. You can check me out at sandrabargeman.com or theplumth2.com. Remember, you are always at the edge of the miraculous. Thanks again. See you next Monday at 7 p.m. This is our last dance This is our last dance This is ourselves Under pressure Under pressure Under pressure
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC